true liberation. You mean death? Not necessarily, Mr. Cornelius. The soul may awaken to liberation, yet continue to animate the body it inhabits. The eternal cycle. In Brahma, you call these recurring ages yugas, don't you? That is so. There are four. The divisions are uneven, but between them they encompass the whole span of time from creation. Smooth stuff, Professor. Yes. Our present age began on February the 18th in the year 3102 B.C. Really? Yes. In the afternoon. Welcome, friends, to Breakfast in the Ruins, a Michael Moorcock flavoured podcast. This time around, we return to the final programme. Having covered the book with Hussein, it's high time we got round to looking at the 1973 film version. So after his last appearance on the show talking about his book, Hawkwind, Days of the Underground, Joe Banks returns to Derry and Tom's to talk it over. This movie version of the first Jerry Cornelius adventure, considered by Moorcock to be a disappointment, occupies a very particular space in the multiverse of adaptations of Mike's work, being the only film version of any of his work to make it to screen. An astonishing statement, really, considering his impact on the fantasy and science fiction genres in the past 60 years, and the film is now a venerable 50 years old. Sadly, it wasn't a commercial success. Moorcock himself said it was released in ABC cinemas as the top half of a double bill with Intimate Confessions of a Chinese Courtesan a badly dubbed, heavily censored Hong Kong erotic Shaw Brothers martial arts flick, but later dropped to second billing. Neither was it a critical success, although the years have been kind to it, and its cult following has ensured it's remained available for long stretches since the dawn of the DVD era, although at one point, the Anchor Bay US edition was highly collectible and attracted very high prices on the second-hand market. But more recently, it had a pretty good UK network DVD release that included the open matte version, and in the last year, it's had a Shout Factory Blu-ray release in the USA, and now a Studio Canal Blu-ray here in the UK. And the results of the high-definition restoration really allow director Robert Fuse's design choices and stylish visuals to really pop. Is it any good, though? Well, pop some pills, grab some chalky bickies, and settle in with Joe and I as we take a look at Robert Fuse's The Final Programme, a.k.a. The Last Days of Man on Earth. <laughs> All right, cool. Uh, we're back at Derry and Tom's and returning to Derry and Tom's for the second time. It's Joe Banks. Welcome back, Joe. It's a delight to have you. Thank you. It's uh, it's very nice to be back again. There was uh, a distinct smell of napalm in the air. <laughs> I can sense. You mean napalm? <laughs> Uh, one of my favourite exchanges in the movie is Ronald Lacey correcting him on his pronunciation of Napalm. Uh, but we'll get to that, won't we? We'll get to that. One of the Absolutely. many outstanding <laughs> character actor turns in the final programme. So first up, Joe, the last time you were on, of course, we talked about your book, Days of the Underground, which, of course, mm-hmm. is still out there, available Absolutely. at all good stockists. What else have you been up to? What else have I been up to? So... um after a lot of umming and ahhing and saying I'm never doing this again, I'm actually writing another book at the moment. 
Ah. Um, and it hasn't been, the subject matter hasn't been officially announced, but I have actually kind of blabbed it in a couple of podcasts already. So um, I'm happy to, to say it is um, a biography of Peter Hamill and uh, kind of Van de Graaff Generator as well. They're mostly concentrating on Peter Hamill yeah. um, because I'm obviously a, a, a mega fan, but also I wanted um, to write and talk about him as a as a solo performer as well mm. as with Van de Graaff Generator. Mm. So um, I'm kind of at the start of that process at the moment. I've done about twenty thousand words. Um, I think the structure is probably going to be similar to Days of the Underground. So there's going to be chronology. There's going to be essays. There's going to be interviews, and there's going to be me doing my <laughs> critical analysis and responses to to all of the uh, the albums. And I'm I'm kind of doing that for the 1970s which similar to Hawkwind, I think mm. a lot of people regard as the classic period. Mm. But I am doing a kind of very long appendix covering what, what he did after 1980 as well. And obviously that, that also includes the, the reformation of Van de Graaff Generator. Mm. So yeah, I'm about 20,000 words in at the moment, but it's um, I think it's going to go quite long. To the uninitiated, how would mm. you give a 20-second elevator pitch on the importance of Van de Graaff Generator in British rock music? Oh, jeepers. Van de Graaff Generator, they still get kind of lumped in with the kind of prog rock, progressive rock movements of the late 60s, early 70s, of which way they were really one of the first prime movers. Um, but I think that they have all kinds of interesting connections, particularly via Peter Hamill himself, into punk, post-punk, experimental music, all kinds of stuff. But also just their their kind of whole attitude towards progressive music if you like whereas for a lot of bands they were they were into the whole kind of pseudo classical thing and and trying to kind of you know they do these incredibly complex albums and they'd want to reproduce them exactly on stage you know it was about virtuosity and 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 you know kind of getting things perfect and Van Graaff Generator the complete opposite of that I mean they are all about noise and chaos mm. and kind of every night being different when they play live and and you know, going back particularly through all of the albums and really going into a kind of deep listening kind of mode, if you like, just the the level of chaos that exists in those albums is is just incredible. I mean, they're they're a completely unique band within um, you know British music, and, and in a way paralleling Hawkwind in that way, in in the way that I you know I talk about Hawkwind and being kind of in a genre of one. And I think Van de Graaff are almost kind of the same. Certainly, and certainly Hamill's solo works are, I can't think of anything kind of really comparable in, in British music to what he did in his solo albums. Mm. And Van de Graaff is still going, aren't they? They're still performing. Well, <laughs> they did a, a a big tour last year mm. um, and they, they played, for instance, the Palladium in London, which I was lucky enough to see them at. And then they went into Europe. But um, when they got to Germany, Hamill had some kind of incident, which meant he was kind of had to go to hospital and apparently it was actually life-threatening um but he's okay now mm. um he's back pretty much to full health but i, I think that's probably it as of van de graaff as a live band that I, I don't think they're going to play live again but a little bird as it were tells me that, I, that there is a possibility that there's going to be another van de graaff album though oh, that's very sad that's a shame and it's even more of a shame because i had an overnighter in birmingham with a day job last year and myself and a colleague who is similarly has similar tastes music wise 
We only found out the following morning that Van de Graaff generator had played within about half a mile of our digs no. in Birmingham <laughs> the night before, but we had no idea. Oh, shit. So, oh, yeah, missed opportunity there. Yeah, missed opportunity. Yeah. But, you know, new album, we'll have to take what we can get, won't we? Well, that sounds absolutely yep, fascinating. exactly. Hmm. You'll look forward Thank to you. reading that. Thank you. But, of course, why are we here today? Well, our original plan was we were going to look at John Brunner's The Sheep Look Up. And uh, the last time we had a conversation, I think it was, we were in Morecambe. Uh, back end of last year, around about Phil's birthday, and I'd taken a copy of The Sheep Look Up, and I've got to a point where my eyes are so crap, I couldn't, my eyes couldn't cope with the tiny print, and also the book itself, it was almost like it had been printed on a printer running yeah. out of ink. It was terrible. Exactly. It's it's very badly printed, that edition. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I got another edition, and that one was just different cover, but was just as bad. So I sacked off. Mm. <laughs> sacked oh, off God. doing the sheep look up. <laughs> uh, we, had, uh, we had another quick conversation about something to cover, and we decided, well, we're both fans of the Final Program movie. We've covered the Final Program book on the podcast. So this is formally the Final Program Phase 4, The Last Days of Man on Earth. And we're going to look at the Robert Fust, and I'll get back to that in a second, film of uh, the final <laughs> programme. And I was watching the Blu-ray, and there's an extra on the Blu-ray, and Kim Newman calls him Fwest. Mm. Now, it's traditional on this podcast that we struggle with pronunciations. <laughs> and straight away, Fust off West. I'm very glad you, you, you kind of brought that up, actually, because I was actually wondering if it's pronounced, because it like rhymes with guest, whether it's mm. just fest. Mm. But Fust, Fust is kind of how I've got it in my head as well, but I've got yeah. no idea whether that's correct. Well, it may not be correct, and Kim Newman calls him Fwest, but I've Fwest, always thought Fwest, yeah. I've always thought of him <laughs> as as Robert Fust, so Fust, I'm just going to have yeah. to stick with it. It's like I can't, I can't, can't, I can't stop calling gifs gifs. I'm not going to call them gifs. I will go to my grave with that. <laughs> so I'm going to go to my grave, call him Robert Fust, Robert Fust. So let's get that out of the way. But yeah, okay. so Robert Fust ends up doing a film of the final programme in 1973. Now, how did you come across the film of the final programme originally? I don't know. I mean, that's really asking. I mean, in the 1970s, 1980s, when I was growing up, you know, it, w it wouldn't be unusual just to kind of come across films like this just playing late night on BBC Two mm. um, or ITV even. And I'm sure I, I did see it, you know, kind of fairly early on, probably when I was, I don't know, 11 or 12, something like that, you mm. know, late night on BBC Two. Um, it certainly, I think it certainly was on a few times on the telly. Mm. Um, and I, I think, I assume probably this would have been around the time, the start of when I first really started getting into Moorcock. I'm sure I was aware that there was a Moorcock connection, but then I didn't see it again until actually just a few months ago, mm. which is a terrible admission, actually, because obviously I, I write about it in the Hawkwind book. But what I actually did was just rely on my memories of when I saw yeah. it when I was like 12 or 13 and, and then kind of go online and watch the trailer and a yeah. few clips over and over again. Uh, so it wasn't actually until a, a few months ago that I actually sat down uh, and watched it properly again. And um, that made me kind of think, hmm, perhaps I was a little harsh on it in the, the in the book. Um because actually, it's it's a, I, I really found myself enjoying it. And mm. uh, in preparation for this uh, podcast, I, I watched it again last night. And the more I watch it, the more I actually really, really like it. Mm. I find lots in it, which I think is is really interesting and really imaginative. 
and are, are very funny as well. Uh, but it's the kind of film that you really do have to, I think, watch a few times to really actually get some of the lines mm. and some of the jokes and get some of the the visual imagery. Uh, and the, there's a lot of visual puns in there, actually, which I saw, which I hadn't kind of really spotted before. So all of that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, to answer your original question, it would be a, quite a long time ago when I first saw it. Well, I, I was completely unaware of the existence of this movie till I was 21. And I, uh, let's think, I was 21 in uh, 93, I think. Yeah, so 93. I went on holiday to Prague and uh, went to Prague with my mate Loz and, of course, Robbo. He's been on this podcast as well. And while we were in Prague, soaking up the atmosphere, the bohemian atmosphere of Prague, you know, after mm -hmm. 18 months after the Iron Curtain had fallen or whatever it was, mm -hmm. I, yeah. I, I remember sending a girl that I was courting in, in old money. <laughs> I was tentatively courting this girl. And, You're showing your age with that expression. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> I, I was, I was shit-faced in this Prague bar where we, you know, beer was 7p a pop, so we were all absolutely I was going to say, you probably, if you were shit-faced, you probably spent about 50p at that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah we, we were absolutely assholed. And I, I wrote her a postcard, and I, the, all I did was just write, um, like, the testament of the astronaut, ha, 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 <laughs> on the postcard in tiny, tiny letters. It took me about an hour to fill the postcard with tiny little ha, 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 ha. <laughs> I thought I was really smart. And then when I got back, one of the guys who worked on the ward where I worked said, there was a film on Bravo when you were on holiday. And I recorded it because I thought it sounded right up your street. And I thought, well, that's odd. That's a very odd thing to say because I'd never discussed Michael Moorcock with anybody at work or anything like that. But he just saw this oddball movie and thought thought it would be up my street. And it was the final program, weirdly. So within a wow. week of sending this ha-ha-ha postcard, this guy gives me a VHS tape with the final program on it. I was like, what? I had no idea there was a final program. Because no internet in those days, is there? You well, that's exactly a classic example. If, if you yeah. don't know, why why would you know in exactly. those days? You know? Yeah, I didn't read Starburst or any of these magazines, so I would never see an old reference to it or anything like that. So yeah, that's how I came across it, and, and I watched it. And I've got to say, I was... E even then, I thought it does some things right, but it's mostly awful. But, similar mm. to yourself, over the years, I've kind of reevaluated it. And we'll start looking at some of the reasons why it does work and some of the reasons why it doesn't what it gets right i think it gets more right than it gets wrong to be honest but when mm. it gets things wrong it gets them badly wrong and <laughs> i think that kind of tips the scales sometimes so it's directed by robert fust and of course what do we know about fust found out he was a jazz drummer when he was younger i didn't know that when i was reading mm. up on robert fust um mm. but came through tv working for ABC, which then became Thames Television, was a production designer on the original Avengers series in 1961, back when they recorded it live, did art direction throughout the 60s. If anybody's listening, check out a trailer for Just Like a Woman, a Wendy Craig series from the 60s. Yeah, the opening titles are yeah. fabulous. <laughs> Fuse yeah. work, really, really, really good. He uh, worked with Dougley Moore and Peter Cook on Not Only But Also, moved into directing television, probably best known for directing episodes of the avengers late 60s avengers with the emma peel character and tara king i think he did some of those episodes as well okay and then he makes his break into directing films two or three small films directs uh probably one of the original proto hicksploitation films in unsoon the darkness which is uh, a really a really great film but he probably makes his break, arguably, with American International Pictures when he directs The Abominable Dr. Phoebes with Vincent Price. Mm. 
Vincent Price really digs him. First one's really successful. Second one, maybe not so. But this all results in him getting the gig doing the final program. So Fusa Guy has been at the heart of some pretty fabulous, quite groovy, groundbreaking British TV. A handful of pretty unique, good, visually startling films. Ends up being the guy to direct Mocox the final program. So really, on paper, it looks like a great match. Mm. Now, it kicks off with, well, I think one of the issues with the movie is, like all adaptations, is it removes some things and it adds in some others. But the opening to this film is a perfect example of some things it does well and some things it does not so well, because you get this wonderful opening with the funeral, the helicopter shot of Jerry mm -hmm. walking across this open ground. Graham Crowden's there straight away. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. So right off the bat, You've got your English character actors. It's a parade of character actors and character actor cameos. Graham Crowden's there. He's on station to make sure that they're represented from the very off. And mm. I love the fact that Graham Crowden's in it because Graham Crowden is one of my weird British film heroes. Because, of course, same year, 1973, he's also playing three roles in Oh Lucky Man. Mm. And Oh Lucky Man is one of my favourite films of all time. And in you know, a lucky man, he plays <laughs> one of the roles he plays is Dr. Miller, the guy who turns mm -hmm. who transplants Boba Fett's head onto a pig's body. <laughs> that is, it's still one of those scenes which I don't even like to think about because yeah. they just freaked me out so much yeah. when I first saw that. It just it still chills me even thinking about that scene. Yeah. It it's really incredible. Does. I watched that one night babysitting for my auntie. <laughs> my auntie's on night. She was a nurse, she worked nights. So I'm I'm 15, 16. And I end up watching Oh Lucky Man. I think it was, it might have been on ITV. I can't, I'm pretty sure I taped it and it had adverts. So it's probably on ITV. And it didn't have the very, very beginning scene because I missed it. So it wasn't until I got the Warner Brothers DVD 25 years later that I realised I'd even missed a scene off the beginning. But that, <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. That scene, um, so I'm at my auntie's. I'm probably stoned. I'm watching that film, completely absorbed by it. This is where I discovered my love of Alan Price. I become an instant Alan Price fan because of that film. And when it gets to that scene with the guy in the bed sweating and he pulls the sheets back, it's absolutely, it blew my fucking mind. Yeah. It was yeah. amazing. It's, it's just like, of, of all the things you're expecting, that that was not, not going to be it, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was just, yeah, oh, gosh. And then, of course, he's also the, uh, he's in Britannia Hospital as yep. well, a uh, doctor there too. That's right, yeah, reprises um, the role in Britannia Hospital. And it's yeah. funny, I think if Fust had been a little bit more Lindsay Anderson, I think mm. this could have been a much better film. Because I've, I've always thought the Mick Travis character in If, or oh, Lucky Man in Britannia Hospital, is, is almost like a low-key, eternal champion-esque character. Because he's, he's yeah, it, it's not absolutely nailed on that they're sequels to each other and there are slight differences in the character they're, they're always called mick travis mm. and i don't know it's like he's he's the erica's in lindsay anderson's multiverse almost <laughs> you know I'm probably overreaching well, i think that's a, a very bit. good point because of, like you say i mean because jerry cornelius himself the whole point is that he keeps on reappearing mm. you know for, throughout the books and and you know he might have died in one book or whatever but then the next book started and it's you know, there's no attempt to explain why he's here again, no. but because he is this kind of, you know, almost for Morcock, a kind of archetypal character in his multiverse. You know, he's, he's yeah. the, I don't know how you yeah. describe him, almost like a trickster character in it. 
yeah. as well as the eternal champion. Yeah. Jenny Runnaker mentions who plays Miss Brunner, and we'll get to her in a while. She mentions in one of the interviews that they were on for doing all of the Mo- all of the Jericho Neely's books, and her mm-hmm. and members of the crew were expecting, if this film did well, that they would do the rest of the books. She read the final program. I'm not. Sh- I'm not sure she could have read Cure for Cancer. <laughs> she, <laughs> she might not have been that convinced that that they would have carried on and done more. But mm. yeah, the other thing about Lindsay Anderson as well is that if only Fust had kind of followed the same path, because of course Lindsay Anderson had control over his own movies. Even though it was a movie made for Warner Brothers, he has some clout, so he, he brings Alan Price in to not only have Alan Price group be like the Greek chorus in the movie, but actually play a role in the movie and be characters in the movie. Imagine what the final programme had been like if you had a similar arrangement with Hawkwind and Moorcock. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, there's, there's there's obviously, I mean, Moorcock has said on a number of occasions that his original intention was that Hawkwind were going to soundtrack the film, but you mm. obviously very quickly said no to that. I do kind of wonder how that might have worked, but certainly I could imagine them you know, kind of being as it is. I mean, they appear in the the movie. I mean, to 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 say appearing is kind of, you know, kind of overstating it. I mean, they're in the background yeah. for a couple of seconds in one shot. Yeah, um, miss but it. I mean, yeah. I, I could certainly imagine them being kind of cameos and bit part characters a, a lot more than than that. You know, just because of the the way they looked, mm. kind of almost summed up the whole entropic universe that you know Moorcock was trying to depict. I guess. Yeah. Missed opportunity, perhaps, but it is what it is. Getting back to your thing about Lindsay Anderson, I mean, I think the thing was is that Lindsay Anderson had come from quite a serious kind of, I don't know, had he come from a theatrical background, but he'd made quite yeah. kind of, you know, kind of serious 60s art house, British art house movies. So he had a lot more kind of respect, whereas Fust was always coming from this background of having been a designer and had been associated with this kind of, you know, pop art, TV mm. uh, and film from the start. So he was... I guess always coming from a slightly different direct uh, direction, but I think there is definitely an interesting parallel there. Mm. And this spot in life you know, yeah. helped to launch Richard Harris's career. So it's it's I suppose yeah. it's to look back on black and white films from the sixties and fail to appreciate just how successful and impactful they were. So this this scene anyway, Graham Crowden's arrived, made us feel comfortable because we like Graham Crowden, and then John Finch turns up, takes those sunglasses off, flicks his hair, and bam, he looks fantastic he looks the part his hair never looks that good again in the rest of the film and (laughs) it looks like his real hair the rest of the film looks like a variety of wigs that change shape and length but in that precise moment where he just flicks his hair and turns around he's got the fair coat on he looks like jim morrison he looks absolutely terrific and Mm -hmm. i think one of the things mocock was actually happy about the film was john finch jerry cornelius so John Finch himself was an interesting character. According to some sources, he turned down James Bond for Live and Let Die. He was mm-hmm. the original Kane in Alien until he became extremely ill from diabetes and had to step out the door, and, and John Hurt comes in and takes on that iconic role. So although he's kind of well-known for certain roles like Frenzy and things like that, he, he could have had this massive career, and it's just one of those things where slight turns, slight flicks of fate, but he's still very, very good in this. Mm-hmm. I like him a lot. Maybe just a little bit too stiff at times. Maybe a little bit too Robin Asquith at others. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, in general, there's a there's a kind of uh, you know a lot of the lines are so kind of art 
Mm. It's almost impossible not to kind of do them in this kind of slightly stiff yeah. kind of manner. You know, it's it's anti-naturalistic, yeah. you know, dialogue. And so you get some anti-naturalistic acting as well to go along with that. But that's the kind of thing that, like you say, when you first see it, you think, what are they on? Are they kind of did this, are they even familiar with the script? But yeah. it's only when you can watch it a bit more, you realize that actually a lot of this is, is very deliberate, the way mm. that it's being, you know, kind of said and presented. Yeah, Fuse has got a a definite approach to the material at hand, hasn't mm. he? And I think I think Finch is fully on board with ta taking that approach. I think there are times when it becomes too much, and for, I think for the first two acts, there's definitely it's definitely a case of less is more with the the arch and the almost edge of <laughs> lack of seriousness to the Cornelius character when he's tackling mm. all this stuff, eating his biscuits and drinking his bells and everything else. But there are moments where I think it just tips over into farce. Just, but we'll get to that. We'll get to that. We get our flashback to our second major character actor of the evening, which is Professor Hera being played by Hugh Griffith, Welsh character actor legend, in a, a, a series of very brief flashbacks. I really sighed a, a, a massive sigh of relief when I realised that they didn't actually brown him up for this role. He, he, he plays Professor Hera, um, but they don't go over the top with this. It's, it's quite mm -hmm. a, a good performance from Griffith as well, I think. But it's very different. Oh, it's similar in some ways to the book, but Griffith is very much uh, a much older character. You get the sense that here in the book is a younger man. And, yeah. of course, the dirt hop into bed together on page yeah. three, which they do in the book. And mm -hmm. I, I quite like those scenes. I think they're really nicely shot. You get a really good example of Fust's eye for space in those scenes. Really, really nice. Mm. I think at this point, it does follow the book reasonably closely. We've got Graham Crowden, as per the book, is one of these businessmen, although I think they're specifically scientists in the film. They want this mm -hmm. microfilm from the Cornelius house, but Frank's got control of the Cornelius house. So it's a never so slightly different setup, but it's still, it, it mirrors, of course, Elric setting off to sack Imria from the uh, from the Dreaming City, and Jerry heads to meet up with his old butler, with his Dusenberg, and Biscuits, pills, and bells. Jerry is a man of very basic tastes because all he's got in his car is crushed up biscuits, pills, but why, for heaven's sake, bells whiskey? And I've I've struggled with this every time I've watched it. <laughs> is Jerry drinking bells whiskey a deliberate attempt to make him look extraordinarily basic and lacking in taste? Or at the time, was bells considered to be a good whiskey in 1973? Um, it, it, it definitely didn't have quite the reputation i think that it has now as the most basic of whiskies mm. um that's funny actually i hadn't really kind of thought about that what is it in the book is it does it make any reference it doesn't it's not like a kind of it's bells malt, in the book you know single malt or anything is it because no, i mean no. he's, it's bells in the book no. as well i think that's the idea is that he just drinks so much of it yeah you know it, and and actually that's exactly the point he's not kind of like some connoisseur yeah. He's just drinking the because that's his that's what he does, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's easy to think about these things these days, of course, because I can remember when seeing Tanqueray gin in a supermarket for the first time, and it became instantly the poshest, most expensive gin in the world. Now Tanqueray's like wankers gin <laughs> these days. Anyway, on 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 that note, hmm. I'm not drinking beer this evening because, in honour of Jerry Cornelius, I'm already dosed up with Lemsip, so. Technically, I've had my pills. I don't mm. have any chocolate digestives, sadly, but I do have uh, some some red breast whiskey. So I'm gonna 
I'm going to go in with a little bit of that for my evening tip-up. And I've even dusted off the old John Player special water jug for a special occasion. <laughs> yeah, look at that. Nice. Which, uh, which pub did you procure that from? This is... Fr we bought this. Actually, my mate Stu bought me this from a bar in Markham called Embargo, which okay. is uh, our favourite bar in Markham when we go over there. It's run by a retired RAF guy called Andy. And when you go in, he goes... <laughs> He's brilliant. I love him. Welcome. Yeah, I, I Welcome. absolutely love him. But he keeps fantastic beer. And he has all sorts of bric-a-brac and bits and pieces in there that he's always selling. So we were drunk in there one day a couple of years ago, and Stu said, I want that John Play special ashtray. And I said, well, if you get the ashtray, I'll have the whiskey jug. And he went and bought me the whiskey jug, so, <laughs> so there we go. To your good health. So anyway, Graham Crowden, he's got his gang. Jerry's uh, gone off to meet with his butler, and of course, because this is the pattern, who's his butler? Well, it's Harry Andrews, the next in the long line of legendary <laughs> character actors. And John is playing, sorry, Harry is playing John, Jerry's butler. Again, the setup here, very, very similar to the book, very similar to Tangle Burns in The Dreaming City. He gives John his instructions to get Catherine out ahead of the raid so he can save Catherine. And again, this is great casting because Andrews, known for playing stuffy generals, authority figures in things like Lawrence of Arabia. He mainly played hard-nosed majors. He was in The Hill. It was the... Oh, right, yeah. Was it the sergeant major in The Hill? I can't remember. But he always played these really, really stiff, hard army characters, army majors and generals. And he was a veteran of World War II himself. He served in the artillery and, and no doubt saw fairly gruesome things. But in real life, he was a gay man. He was a gardener. He was a lover of music, and he spent 30 years right up to his death living with his partner, who was another actor. And I can imagine when, when Harry Andrews gets sent a script like this that isn't just another war movie, I'm sure he was probably delighted to try and do something different and certainly get yeah. get get a yeah. day out and get paid just yeah. to <laughs> probably do two or three days' work. But it's it's a shame that you get someone like this in the film, but the film, compared to the book, steers so straight because what you have in there is harry andrews was like the rob alford of british films gay living his best life in plain sight for years absolute icon mm -hmm. when it's found when it's finally confirmed when he finally comes out people just go oh lots of people go well duh and other people go oh <laughs> but he's still considered to be this icon and it, it could have been a case where you had harry andrews playing this kind of wonderful little cameo role in the gayest film of the 1970s. But the film steers Jerry Cornelius very straight and avoids most of that. And that's a shame, really. That's a shame. Mm -hmm. But anyway, the next thing is Jerry's had his conversation with Harry Andrews. Cameo number four. <laughs> this continues. But this time it's an invention for the film because Jerry visits Major Wrongway Lindbergh, played by... Yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, played by Sterling Hayden. This is an addition. What What do you think to the Sterling Hayden section? Because I've always had mixed feelings about it, and sometimes and I, I, I veer one way or the other. And last night, kind of enjoyed Sterling Hayden's OTT performance, because once again, he's probably shot that in a day. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it feels actually quite more cocky. And as I said, I, I, I've not only just reviewed the film, but I actually reread the novel as well, mm. which again, I, I suddenly realised I hadn't actually read for an awful long time. So I actually didn't realise that that wasn't in the original book. And, you know, it, it has, I can't remember if in the book, does it talk about Amsterdam being 
kind of destroyed with this this kind of some nuclear accident has kind of happened. The Americans have dropped a accidentally dropped a bomb on Amsterdam, and uh, and 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 of course then Jerry gets to deliver this great line. For once, the Americans did a good job. <laughs> Which straight away you think, what? You yeah. know, that's not a very right-on thing to say. Yeah. But it's an actual in- interesting because it, it straight away does create a bit of a vibe. Mm. And certainly, you know, the um, the Sterling Hayden character with his um, his kind of secretary fielding all of these calls from various world leaders. I mean, he's he's kind of like a, I guess, some kind of uh, American arms dealer or yeah. uh, certainly a general or whatever who's gone kind of wild. Yeah, going yeah, to I, for himself. I, I is think, it's, a, I think it's an ankh. enjoyable little scene. Yeah, you know. he's got his big, got his big ankh on. He's got his shirt up and got his big bushy yeah, beard. Yeah, the ankh is kind of quite a strange addition, isn't it, to the yeah. uh, to the uniform? Yeah, you know, again, it's trying to suggest that everything is, you know, in this kind of world is, you know, mixing together. You know, the occult and the military, you know, are a same part, same complex, if you like, you know, rather than the military yeah. industrial complex, you know. Yeah. I think it's an interesting piece of it. I think what goes against it is it's one of these things where when you again, when you first see it, you think, is this character going to return? You know, Mm. are we going to, you know, and as it is, it you you know, you could easily take that scene out of the whole film and it it wouldn't make any difference at all. And what it does is it contributes to on first viewing the film seeming strangely disjointed. It's like, Mm. well, why have we just been introduced to this person? You know, but actually, you know, it's it's quite an interesting bit of scene setting in as much as it's trying to suggest that, you know, there's there's something kind of quite badly wrong in the outside world. But we never, you know, and things like the the, the amazing shot of the, the the piled up cars in Trafalgar Square is another one. Mm. But we never completely get get a full sense of what's happened, mm. you know, uh, other than, you know, I mean, it's not mentioned in the movie, but it's obviously this idea of time running out and kind of entropy taking over and, and all the rest of it. Yeah. It's 18 months or more since I read the, reread the final program again and when we talked about it with Hussein. I don't recall there being that many references to specific things like Amsterdam being blown up by the Americans. Mm. It, it may well be in there, but there's loads and loads and loads of that stuff in Cure for Cancer and The English Assassin. All mm. of the all of the little like news reports about things happening all over yep. the world, they all come in exactly, from yeah. Cure for Cancer onwards. And Hayden, I think he he is lapping it up. He's chewing his lines with gusto. Jerry wants a Phantom Jet, the creme de la creme of combat aircraft in 1973, or certainly 1967 when Maldine draws uh, an iconic picture of yeah. Jerry and a and a Phantom Jet in one of the comic strips. Mm-hmm. I think it works in that it highlights the fact that the world is falling to bits. And whereas the book's a little bit more vague in terms of entropy, there are those scenes in London where people start to become like amorphous blobs. And Jerry starts mm. to panic and and run away. You can't do something like this in a film like this. You've got to have the breakdown of society be third world war related for it to make any sense mm. to the general general audience. Yeah. But but I do like the fact that it's entirely to highlight the fact that the third world war is happening, but it's just a massive grift. General yeah. Hurt, Major um what's his first Lindbergh is just a grifter. It nicely kind of sums up and encapsulates really what war is anyway. It's just it's just a huge colossal massive scale grift and that's what Mm. that scene serves to do and i think for that reason it works and i can forgive it i can forgive it's a little bit of shorthand perhaps yeah and our parade of legendary character actors continues now because we go to the amusement arcade where not only do we get the blink and you miss it hawkwind cameo 
And I think Murcock's supposed to be on stage with Harkwind for that tiny cameo as um, well, isn't he? If you if you watch it, I mean, I've got it on the, on my website, the uh, the book's website, and I've done it as a little gif, and it's kind of easier to study that way. And you can see that there's a bit where you've got the majorettes kind of come and they kind of do their thing in front of the stage. Yeah. But to the right, you have Jerry walking towards us. But then you see off to the left, you can actually see Moorcock actually walking off as well. Uh, as though they've just had a conversation. Right. And Moorcock always says that there was a lot more of that particular bit of scene. You know, uh, he thought that there was going to be more of that in the film, but as it is, it is that literally like a two or three second clip. Mm, that, yeah, I think Fuse wants he wants to linger more on nuns playing fruit machines and things like Fair that, enough. which is, you know, it's, it's, it's a good visual. We do get Ronald Lacey as Shades, and, you know, Ronald Lacey improves anything that he's in. And he's, he's pretty wonderful in this for all of the two minutes that is in it. Mm. And interestingly, you also get a very, very quick turn from Julie Ergie, who is, I think she was a Norwegian model, wasn't she? Who popped up mm. in a lot of films at the time. You get this tiny, tiny bit where she comes up, she talks to Jerry, she hooks arms with him, and she's credited as Miss Dazzle in, yeah. Yeah, yeah. in the credits. Now, that's not acknowledged, but of course, in, in the book, Little Miss Dazzle is the trans pop star that's been manufactured by one of the businessmen who jerry ends mm -hmm. up sleeping with at one point in the final program they've just kind of abandoned that in the film and miss dazzle in the film is a hot norwegian model but yeah. you know she links arms with jerry jerry wants some napalm <laughs> napalm napalm and you get probably one of the most iconic lines in the movie which is jerry says i want napalm and ronald Bliss says napalm and uh, it'll have to wait till Monday. Why? Shops are shut. Which is just one of, <laughs> one, of, one of the best lines, one of the silliest, but best lines in the film. But I think the film really picks up a gear after this. I like that scene. I think it's it looks great. It's classic Robert Fust, really. It could have mm. been a scene from the Avengers. But we go to the airport and the businessmen greet Miss Brunner getting out of her, just get out of a plane or a car, I can't remember. And Jenny Runnaker is revealed as Miss Brunner and she is the pearl around which this film revolves. She's absolutely fantastic. She looks fab, she's powerful, she's confident. It's a brilliant physical performance as well on almost every level. And mm -hmm. once again the reveal out as she gets out of the car, she looks directly down the lens of the camera straight into the viewer. Before mm. just looking away, almost not in disgust, just like <laughs> it's like she, she looks at you, it's too and it's much. like yeah, yeah. There's, just, there's just nothing there for her to really acknowledge. So she just looks away, and the scene carries on. It's absolutely brilliant. It's one of the film's perfect moments for me, and she is really, really brilliant in this. And she's probably the best thing about the film for me. And also, she's we should give an honourable mention to her extended culture cred because she was also Queen Elizabeth and. What was her character called in Jubilee? She was in Derek Jarman's Jubilee in a fairly major role Oh, right, role as well. okay. Yeah, so she uh, she had her moments in unusual well, counterculture uh, films. Absolutely. I mean, like just, just looking online about her, one of the things that keeps on coming up is that she's one of the only women to, to win the alternative Miss World contest, which is usually <laughs> a, a drag artist contest, right. but she actually won it as a woman. And she yeah. does have this incredibly... You know, kind of not a mannish face, but it's very, very strong kind of, yeah. you know, kind of bones, very, you know, kind of it's 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 kind of an interesting, you know, because of obviously what ultimately the film's about. There is a very kind of masculine and feminine thing going on mm. 
in her face right from the very start. Mm. Um, yeah, so she is, I agree, she's absolutely fabulous. And, and, and that's one of the great things about the film that actually, you know, the strongest character in it who who kind of manipulates everybody and, and gets them to do what she wants mm. is 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 a female character, which is probably quite rare in a film from nineteen seventy three. Yeah, and I think it's great casting because essentially, as as we learn with Miss Brunner as the film goes on, you know, and we know from from our readings of the books over the years, she's essentially the personification of the Black Sword, isn't she? Mm -hmm. So you need yeah. someone strong, powerful, charismatic who dominates the screen and com a commanding presence and who makes Jerry look flimsy and, and quite pathetic <laughs> by comparison. And I think it works absolutely brilliantly. There's a fantastic scene where they exchange words about their motives. And I think while, while the script loses its edge sometimes in its playfulness and the, the need to kind of insert like arch gags, which do work generally. Mm -hmm. I think the, the scene where they have the conversation, and I think it's in, it's like in an old abandoned schoolroom where she yeah, tells him yeah. that she's, she's read his books, which is straight out of, the, uh, straight out of the, the book. But this plays to the subject matter really, really well. And again, the performances are really good. And Jerry says to her, what are you, Miss Brunner? And she says, what am I? And he says, who then? And she says, I preferred what? It's, it's mm -hmm. yeah. brilliant. Or words to that effect. And she explains that but she's... A freelance programmer, yeah. her objective is to capture the sum of all human knowledge, a program for immortality. You get this lovely little musical sting when she says that. It's brilliant, and it, it mirrors Hera's prediction in one of the other Hera flashbacks that the world needs a super being, a messiah, so we get that foreshadowing of what will come mm -hmm. at the end. But Jerry's reaction is also great, because when she says, a program to capture the sum of all human knowledge, he goes... Get away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. Yeah. But sadly, I think we, we, we go from that, which is brilliant, to one of the points where the film can't really, can't really sustain itself and the attack on the chateau compared to the book is inevitably a little bit disappointing, mm -hmm. being, uh, you know, obviously due to budgetary concerns. So, yeah. you know, we don't get loads of mercenaries and ex-paras. We don't get a, <laughs> a, a trip to the French coast. Uh, what yeah. we get is a mixture of a basic light show, a sort of bouncy castle. <laughs> there's, yeah, bouncy exactly. Castle. The, the, I think there's a there's a there's an artist who who does those things. I don't know if he was active at the time. Who makes those kind of you know uh, inflatable kind of psychedelic environments? And yeah. I was always kind of wondering whether that was kind of an influence on it. But but yeah, I mean, it's basically like you say, the director just kind of thinking. How can I, you know, kind of make, you know, because in, in the book there's, you know, it's basically man traps, which are kind of, you know, hallucinogenic gas and, yeah. and, but how can I actually depict that on stage on, on the screen? And I think the inflatable bit is, is his attempt to do that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there are other bits of it, which, 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 which really don't work at all. But there is actually, there's a point at one point where they say, oh, we should have got some mercenaries to do this. And it's almost, again, like a little nod to the fact, yeah, we should have done, but we didn't have enough money. Yeah. It's, it's odd those bits with the like the, the cloth corridors and the bouncy castle-esque bits, because it, it moves from them to like these huge wide shots of really beautifully designed rooms and layouts that are just, they're just one shots. You, you mm. see them once yeah, yeah. and once only, and they look fantastic. And the way they're shot and the way they're captured with, I'm assuming it must have been an anamorphic lens to give it that 
that width mm -hmm. in terms of the shot yeah. with the characters appearing very very small in the shot but it, it looks fantastic in fact i think i think fuse probably managed to accomplish that without anamorphic lenses because the old network dvd edition of this had the film in open matte the way it was originally shot so it was originally shot open matte and then masked so he must have done that without 35 millimeter anamorphic lenses so it's, it's a massive accomplishment it looks fantastic but it's really jarring when you go from these quite shoddy you know bouncy castle sort of type corridors to these beautiful shots of these rooms that you only ever see once yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. very strange but at the end of the day it gets us where we need to be which is frank and the final part of the casting triptych is complete really with Derek o'connor another another fairly famous british character actor who did a lot of stuff and he was in things like the sweeney the professional yeah i was gonna say like he that. looks he, even in the film he looks like he's from the sweeney doesn't he yeah he does yeah he looks and sounds yeah. like he's from the yeah. sweeney he ended up having quite a, a successful late career spurt in hollywood movies playing things like ship's captains and once he got once he grew his gray <laughs> mustache he, he okay. appeared in all sorts of hollywood movies just in small character roles yeah but i, I think he's Again, I think he's terrific as Frank. I think mm, he's I slimy, think he's. sweaty. He's just absolutely brilliant. And much like Jenny Runnaker as Miss Brunner, I visualize Derek O'Connor now when I read the novels. Visualize him as Frank. I think he's brilliant. Mm -hmm. And this part of the book is faithful. Jerry finds John, his butler, has been shot. He's just about dead. Frank's taken Catherine. He's drugged her up. He's put her to bed. I've got to say Sarah Douglas in a uh, an early role for her, but Sarah Douglas acting asleep still manages to be one of the most beautiful sights in all of film. <laughs> I've, yeah. always, I've had a crush on Sarah Douglas ever since Superman 2 and the black PVC outfit with the severe villain. Oh, villain gosh. Hair. Oh, my God, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Let's not go there. No. Yeah. Frank and Jerry have their needle gun shoot out to a funky bongo score, <laughs> which <laughs> is which is really cool. And whilst this funky bongo score is going on, they're verbally needling each other as well as shooting each other with needle guns. But of, of course, as we know, because we've read the book and because we've read the Dreaming City as well, doesn't work mm. out particularly well for Catherine. She gets shot in the crossfire. But while Jerry is essentially passing out from being shot with a poison needle, Miss Brunner roughs Frank up. And this is another great Miss Brunner moment. She's knowing, physically imposing, really lusty in her aggression as she's bullying she, She's Frank. really enjoying it. And, and often when you see, you know, kind of those scenes in films where a, a woman is required to kind of rough up a man, it, it, it often doesn't, doesn't look kind of particularly convincing. But it actually looks... Very convincing. She yeah. does a good job of looking like she's chucking frack around, and yeah. as you say, having a having a lot of fun doing it. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. But you know, we know that Frank also is a bit of a piece of work himself. He manages to get away with the uh, with the microfilm, and Jerry has to go and convalesce in a Sunnydale nursing home. And most of the dialogue in that is is straight from the book as well, including the bit at the end where the nurse says. Hospitals are much easier to run with all the patients asleep. But but what isn't in the book is then kind of what Jerry says. No, that's right. Uh, I actually could have wrote it down where, uh, and he says it's the easiest way to run the world for that matter, which is a great line, but that's actually not in the book. And as I say, there, there are quite a few kind of lines in it which you think, oh, that must be in the book, and actually mm. isn't. And Fuse does a very good job of actually, you know, getting kind of Moorcock style at times, you know. Mm. Yeah, there are times when you think he really gets it, but it's never too long before <laughs> before I think, oh, hmm. maybe not. And the nurse in Sunnydale Nursing Home is another uh, Lindsay Anderson alum, Mary okay. McLeod, 
she played, th- I think, three different roles again in Our Lucky Man the same year. She plays okay. the the vicar's wife who breastfeeds Mick Travis oh, at the shit, Harvest yeah. Festival. Which is the other memorable scene for me. Yeah, yeah. She's also <laughs> the um, she's the landlady when he first moves to Yorkshire and Ralph Richardson right. is living in the attic in his pyjamas. And Ralph Richardson says to Malcolm McDowell, says, I'd watch it if I were you. There's many a fly been stuck in her treacle tart. <laughs> oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah but yeah another another lindsey anderson alum yeah mayor of cloud but you know up until this point i'm re-watching it today i'm really enjoying it it's hitting all the major beats okay notwithstanding the fact that and we'll find it again a little bit in a, in a short while that they've really Je- john finch is really good as jerry but they've very much straightened him out because we get a fairly faithful but highly stylized version of the the wrestling scene where in the book mm-hmm. they go to the wrestling mm-hmm. in the book it's very sweaty it's very intimidating you get the sense mm-hmm. that the audience are on the verge of violence mm-hmm. in this it's a classic fused scene in which that everything's white you've got the mud wrestling contrasting with the cleanliness of everything else Sandra yeah. Dickinson cameo selling them wine from the banks, from the radioactive yes. banks of, of Zurich. Uh, yeah, that's a bit novel. Yeah, that, that awful music from the opening titles reoccurs as well, which is a shame. Mm. But most importantly, Jenny arrives in the story, and we need Jenny to get our first indication of the deeper nature of Miss Brunner, of course. Unlucky Jenny. But we also get the amusing scene in Jerry's kitchen where all of his surfaces are covered in whiskey bottles. And his fridge is stacked entirely with chocolate digestives and Chucky nothing Vickies, else. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nothing else. Because oh, you really digestives. like chocolate. You must really like chocolate biscuits. Yeah, Ames. yeah. Yeah, and he, he opens up the freezer compartment, just takes out an individual chocolate digestive, yeah. and just chomps away on it. And this is all great stuff, and it's a great scene in the context of this film. But we get a kind of a reinforcement that movie Jerry is strictly hetero, despite some of his slightly camp dialogue and some of his more androgynous stylings, where Miss Brunner makes it plain that her and Jenny are going to get it on. And Jerry says to her, if you fancy the real thing, come and yeah, find me. Yeah, that is a bit jarring. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, whereas book Jerry, I think, would, would desperately want to get involved. But Miss Brunner's not having any of it. <laughs> Jenny's all Brunner's. Uh, so, again, it's it's really great. But, of course, following morning, Jenny was playing the piano the night before. Miss Brunner's playing the piano the following morning, and Jenny's clothes are neatly stacked. And you get the description of that in the book. And I really mm-hmm. appreciate the fact that in the scene, it's, attention's not called to it, but you see Jenny's clothes yes. neatly stacked yeah. up and her, with her shoes on top, placed on yeah. the sofa. So we get that first indication that Miss Brunner is more than meets the eye and she's actually physically absorbing people. Mm. And then the chase Frank to Spain, again, this is not something that's in the book. I think in the book they chase him to Lapland, don't they? To the to the um, um It's actually it's actually meant to be Turkey, I think, in the film. Is it Turkey? I think is it Turkey? I yeah, think it's Turkey. But they filmed it in Spain because they couldn't it, it afford to go to Turkey. It definitely looks like it's in Spain, but I think it's meant to be in Turkey. Yeah. But you're right, in the in the film that's the uh, in the book. That's the whole point where they they chase him to Lapland and they discover the you know the the, the cave complex. You've got the MacGuffin as well of the the last testament of the astronaut as yeah. well, haven't yeah. you? Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the man who orbited the Earth and it's it's a MacGuffin in the book, the last testament. And they actually find it and it's just a notebook filled from back to front with ha 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 in in handwriting, and Jerry throws it away in disgust. So in this, that's not in this. It's just it's all about the microfilm. Frank and Jerry have another shootout, which again, 
really nicely shot. But meanwhile, uh, Runica brings all of the horniness, <laughs> all of the <laughs> horniness in this film, because Patrick McGee has his two, probably did one afternoon's work again in Spain and got <laughs> handsomely paid for it and gets absorbed by Miss Brunner. And she is so loving this role when she's doing all this. And again, it's so lusty. But there's that brilliant shot where after the absorption scene ends, you get a close-up on a on a, a lemon juicer. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to say. So that's a, I missed that the first time. And yeah. it's just exactly because that's exactly what's happening. Yeah. And, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, it's, I thought that was wonderful. It's a little bit on the nose, but I love it. And to be mm. honest, I've watched this film probably half a dozen times and I'm not sure I've ever noticed it before. Yeah, exactly. I, I only noticed that last night. Yeah. Jerry wins the shootout. And it's a shame because I could definitely have handled more Derek O'Connor in this film. I could have handled a little bit more Frank. I thought he was really, really good. But they've got the microfilm. It's got diagrams on it. So now they go to the old Nazi base in Lapland to complete the program and kick off the third act. So we do get our our Nazi base in Lapland where they're experimenting on trying to reach the Hollow Earth and there's a submarine there. It's a really beautiful set. Looks great. But I think the third act is, for me definitely the weakest part of the film not just for the ending we get a fight dimitri i've not mentioned dimitri have we miss brunner when she first turns up earlier on she's got this guy with her in the car dimitri it was in the book yeah he gets absorbed a lot earlier on I think, yeah much much earlier whereas in this she's yeah. like the dimitri is like her original choice to merge with her yeah. as part of the the final program the perfect yeah human. yeah you do get this lovely scene where she draws in lipstick on on his room window whilst glancing at him hornily and seductively and she essentially <laughs> writes goodbye and the pipe poison gas in to kill him off because she's going to use jerry cornelius instead i was going to say that bit in particular which obviously isn't in the book is is a classic bit of fused kind of you know going back to the doctor i, I call him dr fibes you call him dr phoebes Dr. Fives, Dr. Thebes. You know, um, Christ knows who's right on that one. I ain't got a clue. I'm from all. Don't but, blame but, me. <laughs> but the way that obviously most of those films, you know, the whole point of those films is just to come up with these exotic ways of killing people. Yeah. And clearly this is like one that Fused felt he had kind of left over. Yeah. You know, yeah. I'll, I'll just kind of get rid of Dimitri this way. Yeah. Um, that, that's, that feels particularly extraneous. Yeah. And he does escape and we get the fight in the submarine bay. Which in of, of itself, visually, is fine. Yeah. But it's definitely weakened by overdubbed one-liners from Jerry that he's not mouthing most of the time. They've all been added in mm. post, which turn yeah. it into a comedy fight. Mm. And it really irritated me because there are a couple of great lines in there. If they'd have just kept, get away from me, you, Greek, you fucking Greek maniac, <laughs> that's fine. Keep that in. And at the end, when Miss Brunner comes in, she comes in, she shoots Dimitri and makes a choice. And he says, you took your bloody time. That's great. Keep them. Less is more. Keep them. But all of the incessant, littered-in little gags, it, it, it became just really took me out of it. Don't you like the line where he's going to say, help me, Miss Brunner, I'm losing. Oh, well, yeah. That, that's a that always completely cracks me up because yeah. it is, you know, it's such an unexpected kind of line. Yeah. Ms. Brunner, I agree about the other I'm stuff. I'm losing. That is, that is fantastic. Yeah. Okay. That can stay as well. <laughs> that can stay as well. But Dimitri's dead. Jerry's wounded, shot in the shoulder. So the scientists carry him into the chamber where things will take place. And we essentially get the end of the book. And before we talk about phase four of the book, 
and how this is different. If you'd never read the book, would this ending have worked for you? And we'll get to what that ending is in a minute. Um, I don't know. It's just one of the... It, it, it's just one of those you think, what? Because it's not clear what you're expecting anyway, hmm. um, to a certain extent. Although, obviously, with the whole, you know, Miss Brunner absorbing people, and there's clearly that's, you know, something's happening there. But I kind of, in a way, found it kind of just fabulously odd. Hmm. And, you know, in a kind of, oh, oh, and the film's film's over. You know, that is just... Yeah, you know, it's it's a very strange kind of ending. Mm. As it is, again, having now watched it a few times, I have kind of got my own thoughts on how that actually works compared to what's in the book. Mm. Well, it is an odd one because Miss Brunner, before they actually go in the chamber and even before the fight with Dimitri, she explains the ending to some extent of the book to Jerry. She explains that the end result will be a hermaphrodite being of tremendous mm. power which the book mm -hmm. doesn't foreshadow. It foreshadows the book. It doesn't tell you that in the book. You, don't, you only find that out at the end. But So she explains the ending of the book to Jerry mm -hmm. that this will produce a terrifically powerful hermaphrodite that will have all of the knowledge of humanity and will lead us into the next cycle of existence or whatever. But the film suggests that when the scientists are squabbling about Jerry replacing Dimitri and they've only got five minutes to sort out all of the variables from changing Dimitri yeah. for Jerry, that Jerry replacing Dimitri screws up the programming. So what Miss Brunner anticipates will be the result isn't what we get. It's what we get in the film, which is a Neanderthal doing a Humphrey Bogart impression. Bogart impression, yeah. And then wandering off into a primordial swamp. Yeah. And saying the words, a very tasty world, which are straight from the book. Yeah, I think it's a good point, actually. I hadn't really thought that, you know, the reason that you rather than getting this kind of beautiful, perfect hermaphrodite, you actually get this kind of, as you say, a, a kind of like a Neanderthal figure was because actually, you know, the you know, the program is kind of, you know, messed up because it has Jerry instead of Dimitri, which yeah. is a good point. But it's almost like um, I was thinking about this and it's a bit like, okay, this is the next cycle of humanity, but it's the next cycle in as much as it's going back to the start of the first mm. cycle. Mm. So it's actually a return. So that's the whole point is that actually, you know, the perfect being, I don't know, perfect being, but it's it's like this is how humanity will start again mm. exactly the way it started before. Mm. I don't know whether that, you know, because there's a, there's a talk in the book and in the film of the notion of the eternal return and secular time. Yeah. You know, so if you were getting a bit intellectual about it, I would say that that's possibly kind of like why you you get the the ape man rather than the beautiful hermaphrodite. Yeah. Because obviously in, in, in the book, you get the beautiful hermaphrodite and then you've got the whole of this crazy, you know, kind of scene of, of then kind of as the new messiah being kind of carried forth through all of the countries and, you yeah. know, kind of, you know, everybody kind of together in this wave of ecstatic madness. And obviously you're not going to be able to show that on a on a film but yeah yeah you you're know. not going to be able to do that on on this film's budget i uh and and also i think because that that does kind of make sense in the book because the book toys with our perceptions of gender norms continually throughout mm. the book whereas the film doesn't the film actively avoids some of that the film i think if the film had ended with uh, uh the abolition of gender or a, a dual-gendered being that seduces the population of Europe away from their ongoing violent collapse and instead <laughs> has them follow it into the sea 
and they all drowned. Yeah. That would that equally wouldn't have made any sense. That would have made less sense. No, no. In the that would have made less sense. Yeah. Exactly. I think it was at that point it's like we've got to end this film quite soon. So this is this is, you know, it's it's a joke ending basically. It's a, yeah. it's a big joke. I've got one other thought about it which again may be completely coincidental, but when kind of Jerry and uh, Miss Brunner are in the chamber having this kind of wild sex or or kind of two becoming one as it were it's famously got all of the psychedelic solarized effects yeah. you know it, it's 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 got a great scene you know mm. and i do kind of for some reason it makes me wonder because obviously the great other or one of the other great psychedelic scenes in uh, science fiction is the stargate sequence in 2001 yeah. and of course 2001 has also started with these kind of ape men and it has almost made me think that so what you have in 2001 you have the psychedelic sequence and then after the, the 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 kind of weird bit when he's in the white room you then have the birth of the star child as this is the next ah, stage of humanity you know yeah. and it's this beautiful kind of star child and they almost thought is this like a, a fustian joke almost like yeah. where he's got his psychedelic kind of scene and this is amazing but actually what comes out the other end is the the exact opposite it's it's back to the ape men of of 2001 of course, yeah, that that didn't even occur to me. And also, saying that, the scenes where Dave Berman is in bed after he's gone through the Stargate and the yeah. monolith is in his bedroom, those stark white environments, the mm. environments in the Cornelius Chateau... Very similar, yeah. Very similar, aren't they? Ah, yeah. So that might be just kind of overthinking it quite a lot, but I thought that was actually quite a, a kind of quite neat... Um, in, in as much as they are kind of like two kind of quite prime psychedelic sequences in, mm. in kind of science fiction movies of that time. Yeah. yeah. I never thought of that. Another observation is the movie poster, which is on the cover of the Blu-ray, uh, the mm -hmm. yellow one with the Cornelius figure that's half Cornelius, half Brunner with boobs. Mm -hmm. That yeah. movie poster and sleeve art teases the book ending. Yeah. But the posters for the retitled Last Days of Man on Earth go full on ape with gun. <laughs> yeah. They they embrace the ape ending uh, fully. Yeah. Which, uh, yeah. And the other thing I'd say about the entire ending and um, the uh, the scene in the chamber is Miss Brunner's nighty can stay. That's a terrific nighty. Oh yeah. gosh, yes, that is that is quite a scene. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now yeah. that is that is altogether fabulous. Yeah, it really is. So yeah, that that was the final program movie. So you know, okay, they take away the question of Jerry's open sexuality, uh, the MacGuffin of the Last Testament, the astronauts gone, the Nazi base is retasked. No Ladbroke Grove party, which is a shame. But again, mm. how would you handle that in this movie? You do get that brief very brief kind of scene near the start where he's first you see him driving the big car before he goes out on, into the country and, and gets the boat. and there's a bit where he's, he drives under the west way yeah. it's literally only about a 10 second scene but the west way would have probably been really quite new at that time and he, it's like he's driving through some kind of encampment underneath yeah. he's not on the road he's actually driving through the kind of building site yeah. of the west way and that's the only time you you see labrick grove as it were but that's an in intriguing little kind of insert as well, which makes you wonder if originally there was there was a lot more of that kind of footage shot, but mm. it was just all abandoned in the in the final cut. You know. Well, I suppose interesting factoid when it comes to hanging around Labrook Grove or Notting Hill is that the Jerry Cornelius character was originally offered to Mick Jagger 
and yeah. Mick Jagger, of course, has already made performance. And mm-hmm. an- another one of those perfor- those movies that I think, much like Oh Lucky Man, that sit and are almost almost overlap slightly in terms of tone with things like the final program. Performance is absolutely one of those films that toys with gender and sexuality in yep. a way that yep. this film decided not to to try and probably try and be more commercial. It's a shame. It's a shame. I, I don't know how they would have done that party scene in the context of this film, mm. but I always, in my mind, when you think of not Mocock adjacent films, but things that could potentially be kind of adjacent to that kind of, to Mocock's oeuvre when it comes to things like Final Programme, performance is never too far away for me. Oh, yeah, no, performance, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I would, so. I would completely agree with that. Yeah. But then Jagger supposedly turned the role down because it was too freaky, man. <laughs> Which could have been Which, like, really considering yeah. he did performance. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but yeah, so that that was you know, and and obviously I, I think I I don't know whether Nick Rogue was possibly originally in the uh, kind of mooted to be directing Final. Pro- I don't think he was, but certainly it was the same production crew who had done performance were involved. Sandy Lieberson is mm. one of the producers and he's involved with performance as well mm. um somewhere in the multiverse is, it, there is an it alternative kind of begs the, yeah it just begs the question though again kind of what kind of property or film property did they think they were making mm. you know kind of why why were they moved to make this film and do it in this way all of that kind of stuff because i was reading some kind of review online and, and talking about it and you know they were kind of saying that this is really the last of a certain type of film. And I, I don't think that's completely true because you then get, as I say, things like Britannia hospital, but mm. there's a certain type of kind of like British filmmaking that this is almost like the full stop on, mm. you know, you don't get kind of, of this kind of pop art, you know, very much influenced by, you know, things like the Avengers and stuff like that, which had been so massive in the sixties and all of those, you know, that the, the, they've got a kind of countercultural vibe to them. But yeah. now, by 1973, it's a bit like, that's already starting to feel, you know, a little, you know, um, kind of outdated, yeah. um, which is exactly the same thing, obviously, which Hawkwind run up against as well. You know, at some mm. point, you know, mm. they have to reinvent themselves as well. So, yeah, I, I, it's difficult to actually kind of find a comparison for for it, I think. You know, as you say, there are there are adjacent films, but it, it kind of stands out on its own. And, you know, and it's still the only Moorcock book that's ever been adapted for film. Yeah, and you know what? For, for all the there are problems with this film, when you see how films do tend to get adapted from source material, I think it's remarkable just how much this film gets right, as mm. opposed to what it maybe gets wrong. And the things it get, it does it does get in inverted commas wrong. I kind of understand why it mm. chose mm. the directions that it chose, budgetary yeah. constraints. In 1973, if you want a film to sell, performance was very much an art house film, I think, really. Yeah. You know, if they want this film to actually sell and make money, and their original intention was to make a series of Jerry Cornelius movies, mm. you know, you've got to, That's you've got to file some of the edges before. off. Yeah. I, I only yeah. realized because I, I listened to a, a Jenny Runnicker interview. And what really annoys me is I've got the original Region 1 Anchor Bear DVD release of the final program. And it's got a commentary track with Fust and Runica together. I no mm-hmm. longer have a Region One DVD player, so I, <laughs> so I couldn't play it. And that oh, was what man. I was I was going to watch it with the commentary. And it's not on the network DVD. It's not on the Studio Canal Blu-ray. 
It may be on the American mm. Shriek show, Blu-ray, I'm not sure, but they're region A, so they don't play in the UK. So, yeah, there could have been more insights in there as well. But, you know, at the end of the day, we're not researching it. We're just watching it and, and you know, spilling the beans on what we think about it. So it's not the end yeah, of the world. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I can understand why it did what it did. And if we ever got an Elric film, I would probably put a good 50 quid on the fact that it would go more badly wrong than this film did. Yeah, well, particularly these days. Mm. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, it was at least in 1973, it was a bit closer in time to the material. You know, yeah. the, you know, you, the new wave of science fiction was still kind of chuntering along at that time, you know, yeah. so and which obviously is another influence on it. So in, in, in a way, kind of, yeah, that, that's that's possibly one of the reasons why it, it's still at least is reasonably um faithful to the book in in some respects but if it was you know if it were if that film was made now like you say if an elric film was made now it would be like you know there's so much kind of cultural clutter gone mm. down the kind of down the river down the mm. conveyor belt if you like since then that you know any any elric film is now judged in terms of i don't know game of thrones or something like that yeah. you know how does it fit into the game of thrones universe well it doesn't but then you know from a movie making point of view it probably would be made to and where would the final program fit these days i mean i don't know kind of what's what's the comparison these days is there even any kind of parallel i don't know mm. it's it, it just feels like such a kind of in a way, a glorious one-off, which is why I actually like the film more and more every time I watch it. Yeah, the crazy thing is, for a book that was written in 1967, if you now adapted this faithfully, it would get condemned as work garbage. <laughs> yeah, well, obviously, yeah. Wouldn't yeah, it? Which just, is yeah just you're right, yeah, absolutely. Absolute Propaganda. madness. Yeah, yeah, absolute madness. It was so ahead of his time. So, in, in summary, any final thoughts on the film? One final thought, I mean, I don't know if we're going to talk about this now, but one final thought, I, I, I was just uh, looking at it and I was just thinking how John Finch and Jenny Runica would would have made a brilliant, in an alternate universe, a brilliant kind of Doctor Who and kind of female companion. Yeah. You know, they've really got that vibe at times in the film, which I yeah. think is just brilliant, you know. I tell you, if we could take time back, Sapphire and Steel <laughs> time uh, style. Yeah, yeah it, it, that same kind of thing, you know. It's per that, yeah, because their their relationship is absolutely perfect in it. I would have Jenny Runica as the Doctor in a shot. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and have John Finch as the companion. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. She she would have been absolutely perfect. Just yeah. I think for me, I think Fuse brought the color and the light and some of the character of the book. I think he captured the feel and some of the turn of like that that new world's style and view of of like an entropic London or whatever you want to call it. But I think he lost what it lost. And I don't think it's his fault. I think it's just the time it was made and the expectations. It lost the critically wild gender morphing horniness of it all. Mm. Thank goodness Jenny yeah. Runica brought lusty horniness to her performance because mm. I think it's the core of the movie and I think it's the best thing in the movie. But yeah, you could make this film today, I think, and you could actually bring all that back into it. But yeah, one other thing I'd say is that I mean, Moorcock is famously on record as, you know, not you know, kind of slagging this film off, not not mm. thinking it's good, and I kind of think it's not that bad, Mike. Yeah. You know, and I do kind of wonder whether he had had some kind of quite serious falling out with Fust at some point, and from that point he was never gonna be able to kind of do anything right 
you know, everything mm. was going to be wrong. And and as I say, even even some of the, the lines that, that Fuest has written, they're pretty good lines. There's mm. some good good jokes in here and there's some good Moorcockian lines. And maybe Moorcock just didn't actually like that. Yeah. You know, the fact that he'd actually managed to do that. Yeah, it's it's hard to get in, who the, knows? in the brain of a creator, isn't it? And, and figure out what they yeah. like and what they don't like. You know, Alan yeah. Moore famously yeah. hates anything anybody ever does visually with anything he's ever written. And uh, despite apparently never having seen the films, so you know, <laughs> yeah. that's that's yeah. another one. I mean, I was I was talking about this on Twitter the other day that actually, you know what, V for Vendetta, I think is actually a pretty good film. I mean, yeah. it might not be completely, you know, kind of uh, accurate to the book, but in its own right, I think it's a pretty good, pretty good work. And and of course, you know, the the famous V mask that in a way is his Alan Moore's biggest legacy. It doesn't come from the. The, that's right. The, you know, its popularity doesn't come from the book; it comes from mm. that film. You know. Yeah. Well, that probably makes his shit itch. <laughs> that, <laughs> that's probably the thing least, that annoys yeah. him the most. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's it is it is a shame that we never got any more. You know, people have said, "Do you ever? Wouldn't you ever fancy having Michael Moorcock on?" And I've always thought, "Oh, I don't know. It's like would, would seem a little bit daunting." But Probably the question I would want to ask it. I'd want to talk to him about the land that time forgot, which he wrote. Yeah, yeah. Which he, I think did he write that with James Carthorn, the script, or was it um, M. John Harrison? I can't remember, but he co-wrote that film with one of his buddies. Hawthorne was involved in it. I don't think M. John Harrison was. Yeah, and if I ever if I ever got Mocock on as a podcast, I'd probably I'd obviously want to ask him about the final program, but I would want to I would want to go into intimate detail about how he ended up <laughs> writing. An Edgar Rice Burroughs adaptation for Amicus. Uh, yeah, I'd well, love to have that conversation with him. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he had done the kind of, you know, his his Edgar Rice Burroughs, you know, Princess of Mars and yeah. all of early on in his career. So he was obviously a massive, oh, a massive yeah. fan. Yeah. So I mean, you know, kind of it makes sense in a way. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I saw that film when it came out. I was at the cinema, I was like nine or something when yeah. it came out, and I saw it with my brother and annoyed the hell out of him by insisting on whispering in his ear the name of every dinosaur that appeared on on kind of the on film because obviously that was my big thing at the time dinosaurs and obviously it was only a long time afterwards that i discovered oh, more cocks connected with this as well yeah blimey yeah um, i never did see that at cinema but it was a it was a sunday afternoon favorite as a kid it was always on tv but i did see i saw warlords of atlantis on a double bill with sinbad and the eye of the tiger that was my that was my cinematic Doug McClure yeah. moment was Warlords of Atlantis. Yeah. 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 And your score as well. Mm, yeah. He's a good, that's a good McClure one. Yeah. So that was the final program. And of course, when we talked about having this conversation, we also talked about maybe talking about some of the other contemporaries, like apocalyptic Britain is fucked movies, mm. which are which are some of my favorite movies. I think we 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 did mention on Twitter about about Zardos, and I think mm. Zardos probably does deserve its own. That its warrants. Own I certainly I need to go back own. and give it give it a good kind of rewatch. But that's yeah. another classic. You know, that's obviously in, in a way is the type of kind of thing that's parallel to to the final program, and as much as it is this kind of design classic, as much yeah. as it is a science fiction film, it's all about the the crazy design. Yeah. Um, so that's an interesting one. I did I did actually kind of think about this and I was thinking in terms of Britain specifically Britain kind of de- uh, you know depicted as a you know kind of uh post-apocalyptic dystopian society 
I was thinking most of that in the 70s seems to be on TV. I was actually struggling yeah. a little bit to come up with actual films. I mean, the, the the first one, and again, one that we've talked about is No Blade of Grass, yeah. which again was another one of those films I saw at a very early age on the telly. And that is a wild hell. film, yeah. Yeah, it, indeed. But that's right at the start of the 70s. That's 1970. Yeah. And then I was actually struggling a little bit to think of actual films um, that depicted Britain specifically in a kind of post-Holocaust or post-apocalyptic style. But there's lots, obviously, on, on television. And that culminates for me, and this is something I've, I wrote about in the book with the the final Quatermass series, mm. um, the ITV Quatermass. Now, that absolutely is something which I, I, I think deserves its own podcast because yeah. I think that's absolutely magnificent and again kind of had a a big effect on me at the time when I saw that which you know would have been 11 or so yeah you know again thinking Christ what is this stuff that you know, they they're letting me watch on television you know mm. it was incredible I was only thinking about that the other day and I remember you, you tweeting about that but I was only thinking about it the other day because I dug out and watched a Michael Caine film from the early 70s called The Last Valley which is set during the okay. 30 Years' War. And again, it's it's a parade of British character actors. So the upshot is that Omar Sharif is trying to escape being run down by some villains in the 30 Years' War. He escapes through fields of piled-up burning bodies who've been burned for the plague, and he finds his way into this valley, which seems to be untouched by the 30 Years' War. But Michael Caine and his group of mercenaries find their way in there, one of whom is Brian Blessed. In uh, with a, a really wicked greased haircut and uh, and black leather <laughs> get up, and it's the story of how they decide to abandon the war for a winter and hurl up in this village. Nigel Davenport, of course, who was in No Blade mm-hmm. of Grass, is yeah, the headman yeah. of the village. Really, really brilliant film. But one of Michael Caine's men, I was looking at him thinking, I recognise him. He sort of looks like Simon McCorkindale, and then the penny dropped. He was the leader of the planet people from the Quatermass Final oh, Solution. Oh, kickabout. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, well, you know okay. what? I think that's what we should do. I think at some point in the next few months, we should reconvene and look very specifically at Zardoz, and we'll save a general conversation about things like 1990 and Noah's Castle and all sorts mm. of other things, for a, um, but a specific look the John Mills Quatermass further down. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. And which again will give me a, a great excuse to rewatch it, especially as I actually noticed it is all available online via the internet archive. Ah, so. nice. Well, I fortunately got the network Blu-ray okay, a you... few years ago, okay. which has got the, it's got the full length version and the, and the they, did like, they did like a truncated film version, but the full length version has got all the really fantastic stuff with all the old people living in like the cantonment yeah, yeah. in London towards the end. It's fantastic really really good and also it's a great fit for this podcast because the nigel neil paperback is one of the books i got off pops in the 80s and i read that a long time before i ever saw the tv series tv series i was not allowed to stay up and watch but i read (laughs) i read the novelized nigel neil's own novelization and finally watched it on dvd probably 15 years ago for the first time Mm -hmm. and then got the network blu-ray which is great and it looks fantastic it's really beautifully Mm -hmm. shot in places as well so yeah, that's one for later in the year, perhaps. Okay, that's great. Mm. Yeah, because the the book is the book is good. I I read that a few years ago as well. You know, mm. just kind of out of interest, and it, it's 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 decent, and it and it kind of fills in some of the background as well. And there's some particularly unpleasant bits in it, which actually aren't in the uh, in the TV mm. series. So mm. again, that that's kind of yeah, definitely worth talking about too. All right, cool. Well, that then is what we shall do. Well, you know right. what, Joe. 
thank you very much for coming back to Derry and Tom's no to problem. look at Always a final pleasure. program phase four and we will hook up again at some point further down the line look forward to it massive thanks to Joe for coming back to Derry and Tom's for a second go around you can find more information about Joe's book Hawkwind Days of the Underground, Radical Escapism in the Age of Paranoia, at the website daysoftheunderground.com. On the day I'm recording this, the postman delivered an exciting package. The Black Horde Hack Ultimate Chaos Edition, with art by the incomparable Goran Gligovich, a revised and expanded version of the original Mocock-inspired RPG written by Kobayashi. And Goran dropped by Derry and Tom's a week or so ago to talk about his work, so more on that soon. I also received the PDFs of the Mornblade Quick Start set, so I'll be taking a look at that too. In other words, another RPG-centric episode will be escaping soon. Meanwhile, thanks as always to our patrons. First, those without tear, Anthony Paconti, Tim Cardos, Dave Dempster, and Sebastian Weetabix. Next, our Chaos Engineers, Andrew Cicluna, Andrew Van Ness, Anthony Porter, Benjamin Fletcher, Craig Ledley, Dave Griffiths, Dave Voxman, Gabriel Laycock, Harvey Faulkner-Aston, Jim Kirkland, Jim Knight, John W. Lays, Jules Lawrence, Lee Gary, Mal Pertwee, Mary Catherine, Matt Saltz, Menion, Nelbert, Paul McRandall, Scott Butler, Simon Perrins, and Tony Malazzo. And thanks to our crafty jugaderos, Alexander Harris, Ian Stead, Loz, Taylor, Matthew Broom, Toby White, Tom Murphy, Mark Hebden, Graham Holden, and Ray Otis. And finally, eternal thanks to our patron demons, Andy Darby, Clarky the Cruel, Fred Keish, Gareth Wilson, Greg Faulkner, Gwen Barlow, Imria, Jenny Stim, Jay Reeser, Joe Monty, Liam Jay, Miles Reed Lobato, Mortman, Neil Burton, Paul Hillary, Randall Gatlin, Steve Round, David Lee, the OG patron Norman Beresford, and last, but of course, never least, Robert McMillan. Okay, enough blabbing. Don't forget you can talk to us on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at Breakfast Ruins. You can email us at breakfastruins at outlook.com. The webpage is breakfastintheruins.com. BITR Breakfast in the Ruins Radio is live on Radio Garden or via the web player at breakfastintheruinsradio.blogspot.com. We have our Patreon page too. The rest a few odds and sods on there. But for now... Take care, stay safe, and we will meet again soon on the Moonbeam Roads.